Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is John Sledge, winner of the Clinton Jackson Coley Award for the best book on local history presented by the Alabama Historical Association at its April meeting in 2016. His book is The Mobile River, published in 2015 by University of South Carolina Press. John has his bachelor's degree in history and Spanish from Auburn University, his master's in historic preservation from Middle Tennessee State University. He is the author of three books on mobile architecture and another on literary criticism. Finally, he is the senior architectural historian for the Mobile Historic Development Commission. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Marty. It's an honor to be here. And for those who are anticipating reading your newest book, The Mobile River, can you please tell us what they can expect? Gladly. I was inspired by really one of the most wonderful products of American letters, a series called The Rivers of America, which came out between the 1930s and the 1970s. And and for many years, this project was edited by a guy named Carl Carmer, who many Alabamians will know because, of course, he was the author of that delightful volume, Stars Fell in Alabama. He was an Ivy League, I believe, English professor who came south and, and taught at Tuscaloosa for a year and traveled the state and wrote about the experience. The Rivers of America is really informed by the same sensibility. It's a mix of literature, folklore, and history. And then each volume was authored by a scholar or a figure in that particular region. For instance, Donald Davidson, one of the great Nashville agrarians, did a two-volume history of the Tennessee River. Paul Horgan, a scholar of the Southwest, did the Rio Grande. They did volumes on the Suwannee River, the Everglades, the Hudson, the Connecticut, the Missouri, the Hotting Carter did the Lower Mississippi, and they're just wonderful books. And they were all illustrated with woodcuts, usually maps showing the river and the flora and fauna and historical episodes around them. And so I, I just fell in love with that way of learning about a culture and a people and the importance of streams. But it also struck me that really only one of Alabama's rivers was part of that series, and that, of course, was the Tennessee, which loops through the northern portion of the state. And then, of course, in 1995, Hardy Jackson, of whom I'm a great fan, did that delightful book, Rivers of History, where he talks about the Alabama, the Coosa, the Tallapoosa, and the Cahaba. But he doesn't really talk about the Mobile. There are also good books about the Tombigbee River system, including the Black Warrior and the Sipsi. But again, very little emphasis on the Mobile proper. And what I found interesting was that the Mobile, though it's only about 50 miles long, so in terms of length among Alabama streams, it's an underwhelming 36th or so. But its drainage basin is much larger because the Alabama, the Tombigbee, and all of their tributaries ultimately feed into the Mobile River, which then, of course, filters through the Mobile River Delta, Mobile Bay, and the Gulf of Mexico, so that the Mobile River Basin is immense. It it drains 45,000 square miles. Fair 
chunk of Alabama, a good bit of Georgia, a little bit of East Tennessee, and a good bit of East Mississippi as well. And the federal government looks at that sort of the total riverine length of the mobile, taking up to its headwaters outside Atlanta, Georgia, and it's measuring by all the twists and turns about 700 miles, which is one of the longest river courses of the U.S., So it struck me that all of that, combined with the colorful history of Mobile and South Alabama and then the modern economic importance of the Port of Mobile, merited a single-volume treatment. And I wanted to bring a mix of scholarship, but hopefully readability as well, so that readers could sort of open their eyes to this incredible historic and economic resource in our midst. We all love the Bay, we all love the Delta and their natural resources and the recreational opportunities. But the Mobile River proper, that working arm of the system, tends to be underappreciated because it comes through the harbor. It's viewed as dirty and polluted and unsafe. And and so I just felt like that this was uh, not only a misrepresentation, but a serious oversight of its importance to our history and culture. And so that's what I wanted to do is correct that and do it in a readable, entertaining way with an emphasis on character and incident, because it's certainly the people who've made the river. They have covered the entire range of cultures and peoples that have called Alabama home. How far back do you begin the story? Actually, what I do in terms of the architecture of the book is I bookend it with personal essays. The prologue is called Downriver with Captain Joe. It's about a trip I took the entire length of the Mobile River in the summer of 2012 with a character named Joe Mayer, who's been very supportive of my projects in the past. Joe is a direct descendant of Timothy Mayer, who was a prominent Mainer that moved to Mobile in the 1830s owned shipyards, various agricultural and industrial interests, but he also commissioned the last slave ship to come into a port in the United States, the Clotilda, in 1860. Joe still lives on the Mobile River today, and it's really impossible to appreciate the stream's history or culture without knowing about him. And so he took a colleague and I up and down the length of the river. We went into the Delta, got on four-wheelers, and explored, you know, these ramrod tall cypresses and these incredible below gum swamps, and so I got a, just a first-hand sense of what the river smelled like, what it looked like, and how various it is. You know, at one point in our trip, Joe said, and our conveyance, by the way, was what he referred to as a haul-ass boat, probably did about 25 or 30 knots. He said that the river has four personalities, upland hardwood forest, upland swamp, lower swamp, and harbor. That just struck me as amazing that within a 50-mile length, you have these very diverse personalities. At times in the trip, you know, we were seeing bald eagles, alligators, and it looked like we were in Louisiana or Florida or the Amazon. It was just amazing to have all this variety within a very short distance. And then the epilogue is called Elegy for a Small Shipyard, and that's where I interview an owner of one of the oldest Riverside operations, a guy named Bill Harrison. But he told me the day I interviewed him that he was actually going to close it down because of economic pressure, the BP oil spill, overregulation, frivolous lawsuits, and sort of mega companies now that have sort of sucked up all the trade he couldn't survive. I found that a sort of a poignant epilogue to the whole story. And so between those bookends that are dominated by very different kinds of personalities on the stream, I actually have two sections, a chronology, essentially a straight history, sort of get to your question, beginning, you know, in antediluvian times when Mobile Bay was a broad river valley and mastodons roamed the earth and the shores of the Gulf were 100 miles further out than they are today. 
then how the sea levels came up, and then the early Amerindian cultures settled archaic and woodland, and then the well-known mountain cultures, such as we see at Bottle Creek, bring it all the way up to the modern shipyards. And then I have a final shorter section, which is really thematic, where I talk about enduring themes of Mobile River history, no matter the era or the peoples that are on it, work being one of those, disaster, pleasure, and peril, in other words, hurricanes, epidemics, fires, but also how people have enjoyed the waters. And then the ethnic diversity. That's another fascinating part of this incredibly short stream. You have whites, you have black, last shipload of Africans to come in. You have Creoles, the descendants of the white and Spanish plantation owners who had black slaves as concubines. There was a dearth of white women in the colony. So their multiracial ethnic descendants are still alive and very distinctive culture today. The Apaches who were imprisoned at Mount Vernon in the 1880s, including none other than Geronimo. And then lastly, the Moas, the people who have been struggling for federal tribal recognition, you know, the Mobile, Washington County areas, but whose culture goes all the way back, perhaps to Fort Mims and the Choctaw Maroons who supported the Red Sticks and then had to flee into the swamps when the Americans prevailed. So that to me was just just this amazing amount of sweep and culture and diversity within that 50 miles was, was a natural palette for a storyteller. For the researchers among us, can you tell us about your sources and a little more about your method? Yeah, my sources were really all over the place. And as any modern historian will tell you, the, the Internet is a wonderful go-to place. Just the access you have to historical journals and books that you would never know about otherwise has been phenomenal. So a lot of secondary literature, much of it, of course, well-known in Alabama historiographical circles, uh, Peter J. Hamilton's Colonial Mobile, J. Higginbotham's Old Mobile, more recent scholars such as the archaeologist Greg Wazelkoff, who wrote that wonderful book, A Conquering Spirit, about the Red Sticks and Fort Mims and much of what was going on in the Tensaw country. But then a lot of historical references going back even further to the 18th century, people like Bernard Romans, who wrote A Natural History of East and West Florida, people like Bartram, who, of course, traveled through Alabama. I also look at lots of modern journal articles in the Alabama Review, the Alabama Historical Quarterly, even scientific reports. For instance, I, I found some obscure paper on mayfly production in the Mobile River Delta, lots of things by scientists, geologists, engineers, a lot about port development. I also interviewed the people at the Port Authority. And I think the work's informed also by my training and experience as a journalist. I was the books editor at the Press Register for 17 years. So I try to interbraid all of this history with modern facts and figures and statistics and personalities to show how the river still dominates the city's culture, is still vital to the state's economy, and how it's still got some really colorful and unusual characters on it, as certainly as many as before. So it's a whole mix of things, old photographs, diaries, letters. I talked to old swampers, you know, who told wild stories about alligator hunting. You know, anything and everything that touched on the water. Memoirs by guys whose father had been a fisherman. Stories about logging, lumber journals from the teens out of Arkansas, which talk about meetings in Mobile and the importance of floating timber down. And again, because of the Internet, it's possible to find a lot of these things that would have just been difficult to winnow out before. So what does the future hold for you? What other projects are you working on? I've partnered with the Alabama Bicentennial Commission, Jay Lamar, one of my favorite people, 
to write a book about the Civil War in Alabama. Essentially, it's a battle history. The book's written, it's been turned into the University of Alabama Press, and it's slated for publication in fall of 2017. It's called These Rugged Days, Alabama's Civil War. It's essentially a battle history uh, for the lay reader, so I don't go into great detail about the 19th Massachusetts went here and the 4th Alabama went there. I wrote it for a general reader to try to understand the war from everyday people's perspective, both Unionists and Confederate supporters, as well as slaves and children and women and those who have traditionally not had voices. So that was terrific fun. And then currently I'm researching maritime history of the Gulf of Mexico, which will be titled Coursing the Furrowed Blue. And the title's inspired by some remarks Lafcadio Hearn made about viewing the Gulf from Grand Terre down in Louisiana. And again, in the case of that, there's just not been anything like that. And I felt like there was a market and an opportunity for a general reader to learn about some of the colorful episodes in the maritime history of the Gulf. I got into historic preservation, as I think a lot of people did, out of a love of Alabama history and culture. And so I really applaud what the association's been doing through its annual meetings, its podcasts, its newsletters, and the Alabama Review, which is a bedrock source for anybody researching Alabama history. It's, it's just a wonderful record of achievement, and I applaud you all and, and cheer you on. Well, thank you very much for saying that. And thank you also for contributing to this podcast series. And again, congratulations on winning the Clinton Jackson Coley Award for the best book in local history at the Alabama Historical Association meeting of April 2016. Thank you, Marty. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org. 